I have said many times from this pulpit that my philosophy of ministry, especially as it pertains to these students, is twofold. First is a relational aspect. Christ built relationships. Christ went, he found his disciples, they walked with him during his ministry. He built those relationships with them. As a matter of fact, the longest recorded one-on-one conversation in the Bible that Christ had with someone was in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. He built relationships. We are called to do the same. You and I are called to do the same. As a matter of fact, discipleship starts long before someone makes the decision to come and follow Christ. Discipleship starts long before someone has confessed their sin and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So we are called to do the same. We need to be out there building relationships. The second aspect is an apologetic aspect. The word apologetic comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. We should be able to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. And we've actually got some students who are very convicted of that right now. Uh, that I've heard talk and, and talking to their parents who are very convicted of, we need to know why we believe what we believe so we can make a difference. It's not enough to just say, I believe because I go to church, or I believe because my parents believed, or I believe because my pastor said I believe. No, it's not enough. We have to know why we believe what we believe, and we have to be able to give a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chances are, if you have been in a church setting for any length of time, you have heard these couple of verses of scripture, or at the very least of loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. So this morning, let's take a look at Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, and then we're really going to look at one aspect in particular. So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, we're going to read three verses down through verse 27. When you found your place, please stand with me as as we read and then remain standing for a time of prayer following. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love you. And Father, I thank you for what's already been said and done done here today, Father. I thank you for the words that have been spoken. Father, we do uh, praise you and Jesus over everything. Father, over all fear, over all anxiety, over all doubt. Lord, I pray for each one in this room today. Father, I know that there are families. I know for a fact there are families in this room who are hurting today. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would draw near to them, that, that your presence would be felt in a way that they've never experienced before, Lord, and I just pray that you give them strength. Lord, I pray that as, as we worship, as we study your word, Lord, that you would convict us. Father, that you would convict us to build relationships with the lost, and Lord, that you would convict us to know why we believe what we believe. Lord, that we would love you with all our strength, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. Lord, we do love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 25, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this expert approached Christ. This was a lawyer. As a matter of fact, your version of the Bible may actually say a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. If you were using the New King James Version, it says a certain lawyer. This would have been an intelligent 
individual. Now, when we think of lawyers, I know there's a lot of different words that may come to mind. However, one should be that they're an expert in the law that they practice. And by the way, I know some great godly lawyers who love the Lord, so they don't all deserve the reputation that many of them get. So this lawyer tests the Lord. When we hear that the Lord was tested, we immediately think, oh, he's trying the Lord. He's trying to catch him in a trap. He's trying to trip him up or back him into a corner. And throughout Scripture, we do see some instances of that. We see examples of that throughout Scripture. The Pharisees try to trick Jesus when questioning whether or not it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath in Matthew chapter 12. They do the same thing later on in Matthew chapter 22 when they ask if it's lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not. Many times Jesus is tested in a malicious way to try to get him into contradicting himself. In this case, however, the Greek word for test is not necessarily an evil or wrong or uh, mean word. This man was more than likely asking Jesus a legitimate question. Chances are he was sincere in his asking, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We must also recognize that when eternal life is mentioned in the Bible, it is not just something that we obtain at the end of life. And a lot of times I think that that's the, that's the notion that we have, that eternal life is just something that we obtain at the end of life. That's not necessarily the case. We, we have a eternal life right now in Jesus Christ. For those of us who know Christ, we have reason to be joyful. We, we have eternal life right now. It doesn't start at the end of, end of our life. It doesn't start when we draw our last breath on, her, on, our, on earth. Excuse me. It starts right now. As believers, we have it right this second. And we should be joyful in our everyday interactions with others because of the eternal life we now have with Christ. So Jesus responds to him and he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now Jesus is not being sarcastic here. He's simply acknowledging you're an expert in the law. What does the law say? In other words, how do you understand it? How do you explain it? What does it say? The lawyer responds with, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's a lot to unpack in these verses. We could honestly spend a sermon series of about five sermons right here in this passage discussing loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. This morning, we're going to, however, we are going to focus on one aspect alone. says to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, And I would venture to say that most of you in this room today are believers. Most of you are followers of Christ. You have come to church where you're likely familiar with the building. You're familiar with the other people. And I will go as far as to say that most of you probably love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But what about your mind? That's what I want to focus on today, loving God with all of our mind. How often do we really devote all of our minds to God? How deep do we dive into knowing and understanding God? There are a certain faction of believers which many times starts at a young age where we hear something contrary to the word of God. We hear an argument on why God doesn't exist. We hear something about the Bible that we really aren't sure how to answer. And instead of diving deeper into knowing and understanding God more, we say in our human understanding, I really don't understand that. I can't explain that. Maybe this is in fact not true. And what we allow to happen is the slow degradation of what we thought we believed. 
We allow a seed of doubt to be sown, and we uh, begin to abandon God right then and there. I've seen it time and time again, and this doesn't always happen overnight. Sometimes it happens slowly. Either way, it's a product of not loving God with all of our minds. We used to see this just happening at the high school level. Now we see it at the middle school level. We even see it at the intermediate school level. And occasionally we see it at the elementary school level. It's happening at a much younger age. So let's look at a, way, a few ways that we can love God with all of our minds, how we can come to know him better and more fully, and how we can use all of our mind to combat this. So recently I had someone ask me, they said, Chase, what's, what is the deal with all the obscure laws in the Old Testament? I mean, I, they don't make any sense. They're crazy laws. And society mocks these laws today. And maybe you've even heard people mock these laws. They, they, they don't understand them. And maybe you have even been asked about these laws and you are unsure of how to answer some of these questions about them. So let, I want to look real quickly at some of these laws in the Old Testament and just read a few. So you don't have to turn here. I just want you to listen along. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. If you build a new house, make a railing around your roof so that you don't bring blood guilt on your house if someone falls from it. First of all, why are you on my property? Secondly, why are you on my roof, right? I mean, what in the world's going on with that? Leviticus 19.19 says in part to not put on a garment made of two different kinds of material. Why in the world would that matter? It's just clothes. I mean, I can wear what I want, right? How about Leviticus 19.28 where it says this, You are not to put gashes on your bodies for the dead or tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Those all seem rather strange when we look at them, don't they? Uh, they seem strange mainly because we don't have a whole lot of context when we read those as standalone verses. What about this law, which is not in the Bible, and one you're probably not familiar with, but one I want to talk about for just a second. 150 years ago, in Lexington, Kentucky, it was illegal to walk around town with an ice cream cone in your back pocket. <laughs> now, hang on a second. I have never in my life decided I was going to walk around with an ice cream cone in my back pocket. If I'm going to walk around with ice cream, I'm going to eat it. I don't want it melting. I don't want it getting all over my clothes. I don't want to forget that it's there and sit in it. I mean, what an, what an odd law. I don't, we, we just don't understand that, do we? We hear that law and we immediately think, what a dumb law. There is no need for such a law as that. Besides, if someone wants to put ice cream in their back pocket, it doesn't concern me at all. I mean, unless I sit behind them. Well, again, we are lacking the context. There is actually an intentional purpose for this law. You see, this, this day and age, our primary source of transportation is by car. And I would say that 100% of you drove a vehicle to church today, even with gas prices being so high. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's funny, I, I, earlier today, one of the students mentioned, they said, there's a car outside running. And I walked by it, and I didn't think much of it. I said, well, maybe they're coming back. And this isn't part of my notes, it's just I wanted to add this. <laughs> so I came back a little bit later, and the car was still running. I thought, somebody's going to be upset if they go out there and they see that their car has been running for two hours with gas over $4 a gallon. So I went, we ended up finding out who it was. He said, man, that thing's so quiet, I didn't even hear it running. So believe it or not, as we're, since we're talking about gas prices, I was actually robbed the other day at a gas station. Um, I wasn't, nobody physically came and put a gun to my head and stole money from me, but I was, I was robbed when I swiped my credit card. And um, I thought, I actually thought, I said, you know, this is so ridiculous. This is so ridiculous that I'm only going to get $10 worth 
and I put $10 worth in, and I made it all the way from Mountain Energy to QP. So, <laughs> 150 years ago, however, the primary source of transportation was horseback. And regardless of the type of transportation that you have, there's always somebody lurking to try and steal it, isn't there? Well, back then, 150 years ago, horse thieves would walk through town with an ice cream cone in their back pocket. And any horses that weren't tied up would begin to follow those individuals and attempt to eat that ice cream. And once they made their way out of town, they would steal the horse. So hence, we see the reason for that law. To us, hearing the law alone that you can't carry ice cream in your back pocket makes absolutely no sense. However, when we hear the context behind it, we understand the reasoning behind it. Much like the building of a new house in ancient Israel, they had flat roofs. They would often work up there or take walks up there. This railing, also known as a parapet, was a sort of protective wall along the edge of the roof to protect someone from falling off. It was a way to show that you loved your neighbor. Not wearing two, kinds of, two different kinds of fabrics so, was so that the stronger fabric would not tear away from the weaker fabric, the Lord wanted them to be good stewards of what they had, of what they had been blessed with. They were also loving their neighbor in that they were not wasting resources that would have to be replenished. The tattoos, I mean, come on now. My body, my choice, right? I can do with it what I want. The issue here was to set themselves apart. Ancient Near Eastern cultures would tattoo themselves as part of their worship to idols. If the Israelites had tattoos, it would communicate that they also worshipped idols. Set yourselves apart in how you live so that you can be a light to non-Christians. That is the same mentality that we should have as well. Set ourselves apart so that we can be a light to a lost world. And I want to also mention that you should not sin against your own conscience. You know that? If it's a, if it's a sin to you and, and, and that's, that's how you feel about that, you should not sin against your own conscience. But you also shouldn't uh, perpetuate that on someone else and tell them that that's a sin if, if, it, if it is no longer. So uh, these laws did a few things. It set the Israelites apart from the rest of the world and it showed love for their neighbors. So when we have a little, little more context, we can understand how these laws make a little more sense rather than just looking at them blindly and saying, that's the, that's the dumbest thing that I've ever heard. So it's easy to have a skeptic question those laws and for us to, to sit here blindly say, that's dumb, that law doesn't make any sense, instead of loving God with all of our mind and trying to understand why these laws were laws to begin with, sometimes we just look and say, you know what, this... This isn't true. This, this just isn't true after all. And maybe I don't need to follow God. Maybe, you know, I'm just capable of doing it on my own. That's what a lot of Christians do this day and age. That's why we see a lot of people walking away from the faith after so long. Because maybe they love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. But they didn't love the Lord their God with all their mind. And they just blindly accepted something as, as truth. So it goes back to loving God with all of our mind. We have to be willing to devote just as much of our mind to God as we are our heart, soul, and strength. The fact is, we cannot go through life not giving God our minds. The truth of the matter is, we are often more concerned with the things going on than we are with our minds. In other words, it's often easier to concern ourselves with the things we can see rather than the things we cannot see and, and care about the things around us rather than what's inside of us. How we think and feel affects every part of our lives. So speaking of thinking and feeling, what about science? Does science contradict the Bible? 
Have we learned anything scientifically that would cause us to look at this book and say, this is only fit for the trash pile. Nothing here is relevant for me in the 21st century. Just out of curiosity, how many times over the last few years have you heard the phrase, follow the science? A bunch, right? Now, this is in no way, shape, or form a political point. I'm simply going to point out how we can use our minds to honor God when it comes to the things we hear in the media, in academic journals, in health articles, and when others who are educated try to use science to contradict the Bible. Aren't we sometimes guilty of blindly following what scientists and health experts say? We are. They speak in some sort of public forum or they publish an article, and we think we can trust them. They are the experts, after all. In actuality, they are just as susceptible to flaws and greed and power struggles and biases that you and I are prone, are prone to if we're not careful. In, other, in the words of Dr. Frank Turek, I want to share this with you. He says, we have to be careful when someone says, trust the science, because in actuality, science doesn't say anything scientists do. I want to share a story with you that very well articulates this. Dr. Peter Bogosian was a professor of philosophy at Portland State University. He is an atheist. He wrote a book titled A Manual for Creating Atheists, which, by the way, I have to add here, I, I really don't understand that. If you are an atheist and, did you, and you believe that uh, this is a fairy tale and there's no such thing as God and there's no such thing as, as heaven or hell, then why would it matter if someone else believed it? Why would you create a book that is a manual for creating more atheists. I want, to, I want to share this with you real quick too. R.C. Sproul, some of you may know, he actually addressed a room full of atheists once during a speech, and he said this. This is a quote. Though you say you do not believe in God and you want me to give a compelling argument for his existence, I know going into this discussion that in fact you already know that God exists and that your problem with the existence of God and the final analysis is not an intellectual problem, it's a moral one. Your problem is not that you don't know God exists. Your problem is that you can't stand that God whom you know exists. That's a powerful, profound statement. And one that speaks very well to the Bible as well, because in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it says that the unrighteous will suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and refuse to believe all that God has made evident to them. In other words, the law is already written on their hearts. They know and they refuse to believe, just as R.C. Sproul said. So back to Dr. Bogosian. He said that, and we would agree, he said that the majority of universities were no longer teaching. He said that they were just churning out social justice warriors. And he set out to prove a point. So he wrote a couple of bogus articles and he put these articles out there for the purpose of showing how flawed the peer review and academic journal system was. I won't even tell you the title of the main one because it's a little inappropriate for younger listeners. But the title suggested and argued that certain male appendages were part of the human mind and therefore responsible for climate change. Now think about that load of junk for just a minute. Now... It was a fraudulent article, but the point was many people believed it. This was a peer-reviewed, published article. After it was published, they came out and they said, this is just a hoax. We did this to prove a point. Well, he came under intense scrutiny. 
He thought he would have the backing of the university. He did not. In 2018, which was just after he wrote this article in 2017, he said, I can still get the, the paradigm to shift. He said, I can still get the university on my side. So he published another article, and in it he argued that there was an epidemic of dogs doing what dogs do at dog parks, and that therefore we should leash men in the same way we leash dogs. This was another peer-reviewed published article. Now, some of the people, after finding out that this was a hoax, sued him for conducting human studies on individuals and experiments without them knowing that it was a study. The university did not come to his defense, and therefore he resigned. If you want more information on that, I can give you more information on that. So why are people publishing this kind of nonsense? And let's be clear, this is just one example, but it happens all the time on many different subjects. Why is that? It boils down to this. They have a certain moral ideology, and they will not publish anything that doesn't conform to that moral ideology. If it doesn't fit their narrative and what they want out, they will not publish it. Anytime we read something from the so-called experts, we need to stop and question, who exactly are the experts saying this, and what evidence do they really have in support of this? We don't need to just blindly follow them. They have agendas and biases and flawed thinking, just like all the rest of us are susceptible to. Even when the article says, we have reached a consensus on this subject, when someone says that they've reached a consensus on something, there's always some controversy surrounding that topic. What they are essentially saying is, we have reached a consensus on this, and if you don't agree with us, you're wrong. If you don't agree with what our group think consensus thinks, then you're wrong. <clears throat> I really want you to hear this. In most of your academic fields, and even in biology, yes, even in biology, you cannot get an article published unless you agree with the groupthink consensus. This means that there are social pressures for you to conform to. You must agree with the consensus of a particular field, or you don't even stand a chance. Try getting a biological field degree, a field study done uh, from the standpoint of God created all things. Do you think they're going to allow that to happen? We love and honor God with all of our minds when we think about the information we are taking in and we compare it with Scripture. We research and we evaluate. God didn't give us minds to not use them. We can be followers of Christ and still use our intellect. C.S. Lewis, some of you may know, wonderful author, started out an atheist and wrote some amazing books. He actually wrote the book Mere Christianity, which is a book that aims uh, to the skeptic and to the atheist. And in this, he, he, he explains Christianity <clears throat> to the atheist and to the skeptic. And in this book, he said, this is a quote as well, suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe. In that case... No one designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve God. Science hasn't disproven the Bible or Christianity at all. In many ways, science is just catching up with what the Bible has said. God in his sovereignty has allowed 
some things to be included in the Bible from some very unlikely individuals. I want to share this with you as well. In the book of Job, there are several scientific facts from a man that probably would have known next to nothing scientifically. Job chapter 26, verse 7. He stretches the northern skies over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the water in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst beneath its weight. Many ancient people groups believed the earth was suspended in some way or that Atlas himself was holding the world. Others believed that it was flat and that the stars were suspended from some type of dome. He wraps up the water in the clouds, talks about the water cycle. In verse 27 of chapter 36, Job, Job mentions water drops, evaporation, and condensation by saying this, for he makes water drops evaporate. They distill the rain into its midst, which the clouds pour out and shower abundantly on mankind. While this may be common knowledge now, and even young children have a basic concept of, uh, the, of the water uh, cycle, this was not fully understood scientifically until about 400 years ago. So to have a man 3,500, 4,000 years ago talk about this, science was just now then catching up with the Bible, not the other way around. There are many other examples of this too. All we have to do is apply our minds to God, to thinking about the things of God and loving God with all of our minds. So another point that I want to make this morning when it comes to loving God with all of our minds is one you may have heard before. Typically when we hear a message like this, uh, we think or hear it only from the standpoint of what we allow into our minds. Okay? What, what we focus on daily, what do we watch, what do we listen to, who do we surround ourselves with, Whose voice do we hear in our head when we're, when we're seeking for advice? Do we hear good, godly advice from fellow Christian students or Christian parents or Christian teachers or Christian co-workers? Or do we hear advice from people who are wicked that we really have no business listening to their advice to begin with? Who are we listening to? What is it we dwell on? I want you to think about that for just a second. Dwell is not a word that we use much. Chances are the last time you used the word dwell, it was in a Christian song on the radio or at church. Dwell is just not a word that we use a whole lot. But I want you to think about this for a second. What is it you dwell upon? What do you dwell upon? Our thoughts have such a big impact on everything else. What we allow to take up real estate and our minds influences everything else. And let's be honest, sometimes it can be very difficult to escape the negative thoughts, can it? It can be very difficult. Sometimes those negative thoughts are prevalent in our mind. Everything that's going on in the world, it's very easy to focus on all the negative. Uh, I actually listened to a podcast a while back that went along beautifully with this. It was a 12-year study that was conducted on people who they, where they were shown five minutes of negative news stories Every single day. Just five minutes of negative news stories. When's the last time you only heard five minutes of negative news stories a day? At the end of that study, they found those who had the negative information flooded into their, into their minds were more depressed than they were before. They thought the world was a negative place. They were far less likely to help other people. They often believed that what they heard would happen to them. So I ask again, when was the last time you only heard five minutes of negative news stories a day? I can't remember the last time I did. So what exactly do you dwell upon? Now I'm going to confess to you that I struggle 
badly with this. I really do. I struggle pretty, pretty rough with this. Sometimes I walk out the door in a foul mood. I open the door. I have a neighbor who, <laughs> he's got, I hope he's not here. <laughs> he's got pretty good acreage. And the other day he bought goats and he put them like literally right on the line. And every time I walk outside, you open the door. You cannot escape those. I don't care how quietly you open the door. You open the door and they're like, <laughs> and, I, and I'm in a foul mood immediately. I look over there and I think, ah, I wonder if I could get away with shooting those things. <laughs> then I get behind the wheel of a car. I get behind the wheel of a car. And let's be honest, gas prices affect us all. And then you've got people on the road who, who don't know how to drive. And before you know it, you're really in a foul mood before you've had any interaction with anybody else, aren't you? We allow ourselves to dwell on these things instead of the Lord and his goodness, his holiness, his love for us, his kindness, his mercy, his justice, his sovereignty. We must make the decision to actively dwell upon the things of the Lord. What we dwell upon comes out in how we talk to others and how we treat them. What we dwell upon has such an impact on us and others, it is a major deciding factor in whether or not people want to be around you. Nobody wants to be around you. Maybe it's because you're such a negative and unpleasant person to be around all the time. Let's be honest. And I'm not making fun of anyone with mental health issues. That, that is a real issue. However, some of that stems from what we allow our minds to dwell on all the time, doesn't it? A.W. Towsers once said this, and I've shared this with our students before. He said this, and I really want you to take this with you today. I'm going to read this twice. He said, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. There is what's called the law of exposure. The law of exposure says that you will think about most what you have been exposed to the most. We are all being discipled by something or someone. Every single one of us in this room, myself included, we are all being discipled by something or someone. Every one of us, without exception, you are being discipled by something or someone. The question is, who or what is discipling you? Lastly, the final part of verse 27 says this, and your neighbor as yourself. Some of you failed immediately at that today when you stole your neighbor's peppermint. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. This can be one of the most difficult things in life. I failed miserably at this about a year ago. Our neighbors are those that we come in contact with. It can be your physical neighbor. It can be a coworker. It can be someone at school. It could be a client, someone in the grocery store, someone in the doctor's office, someone you meet in a vacation or on a trip. Anyone we come in contact with is considered our neighbor, and as Christians, we are called to love them as ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to challenge you today to love God with all of your minds. I am no expert in anything, but I will tell you this. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, the more I study God's Word, the more I'm involved with other believers, the more I hear God's Word preached, the more I read things of God, the more... Uh, Christian theologians that I listen to, the more involved I am in things of God, the more that I allow my mind to dwell on things of God, the more convinced I am that he's real. Throughout our lives, we will be challenged in many different ways about Christianity, about God, and about the Bible. 
Even other Christians will challenge us on things that they don't agree with. We must make a conscious decision to love God with all of our minds to combat these arguments. Please pray with me.